Hi, everyone, and welcome to Pastrami Law Mill, making the law easy to digest since 2022. My name is Brian Pastore, and I'm a trial lawyer in Southern California. During this podcast, we're going to be talking about the five biggest verdicts in California of 2021. And also, since I'm a lawyer, I always have to put in the standard legal disclaimer that nothing in this podcast should be construed as legal advice. This is all meant to be educational. So if you do need legal advice, make sure that you consult an attorney who is licensed to practice in your area. So with all that being said, today I'm here with my friend and former co-worker, Dan Short, and let's get started. Hey, Dan, how's it going? It is going pretty good. How are you today? I'm doing great. Um, we're, weather's nice. Southern California tends to do that. Your weather's always nice. My weather is actually nice. It's not raining. It's not hurricaning. It's fantastic. That's That's great. Yeah, it's uh, so happy to be here. Happy to be talking to you. I today what we're going to be doing since we're talking about the top 10 cases of or rather we're probably going to do this in multiple parts. So this will just be the first five uh, the top five cases of 2021. Um, before I get started on them, I should point out that while a lot of these cases are pretty typical of what you'd expect for big verdicts on any given year. Uh, especially in California, this these cases because they all came down in 2021. That means that there were trials that were going on around the pandemic, and because of the pandemic, this might not be representative of every single year. So, a little bit of an asterisk there. Um, I know from my own personal experience in 2020 and 2021, there were cases that I would have loved to have taken to trial that I couldn't because getting all of the witnesses together was just that much harder and you had to decide, are we going to be doing a trial remotely? Are we going to be doing it in the courtroom? And that did factor into settlements on cases and it factored into the client wanting to settle on some cases. So um, I'm not positive that in 2022, I'll probably do another one of these. Um, It might be different, but overall they more or less line up. So with all that being said, I'll start with the biggest case of 2021, which actually does line up perfectly with what I'd expect. It was Plexicon Inc. v. Novartis Pharmaceuticals Corp. And that's a patent case, which that's not uncommon. Patent cases usually are among the biggest cases you're going to get verdicts on. Um, One of the big reasons for that is because if you think about it, companies make their money off of the products they sell and the services they provide and patents for a lot of companies, especially technology companies are usually what protects their ability to go make that money. So it's, if you think of billion dollar companies, billions of dollars in those companies are going to be tied to their patent protection. I feel like it's probably a question for an entirely different podcast, but you see like the huge cases like this one. I think, I think it, you, you put down, it was like $178 million. Um, I, I feel like because patents are kind of available for anybody, like you'd be inventor in your garage and come up with an idea, but is there a point where you should consider a patent versus just sticking with trade secret or like, wh- where does, where does having a patent on an idea start to make sense? Because it's not just like a once and done, like you're, you're paying yearly, right? To yeah. Maintain it. 
So one thing, yeah, that's a really good question. And you're right. It would, for me to really dig into it, it'd probably be a whole discussion on patents. Um, I started out my career as a patent attorney and very quickly pivoted away from it because it wasn't particularly fun for me, but they are, um, patents are expensive. Uh, it's depending on what kind of patent you're trying to get. A lot of times a patent could cost you easily $20,000 to get. Uh, to actually get it issued. And it can take years, it could take three to five years, because what you're doing is you're paying a patent attorney to go back and forth with the patent office to try to get as much protection um, for your technology. I kind of skipped ahead there. By the way, what a patent is, is it's a legal protection, um, property protection on your uh, invention. There's, there's different types of patents, but as a general rule, if you have something that you invented that does something that has utility, that's the vast majority of patents are utility patents. So for example, if you invent a new type of engine for a car or a new type of mechanical device that, um, that does something that wasn't there before, or in this case, Plexicon Phenovartis, um, this was about what's called protein kinases, but it's basically cancer drugs. Um, if you invent some new chemical, either process or you find a way to utilize a certain chemical in a novel way, um, that's, that, those are your inventions. Um, and when it comes to whether or not it's worth it, the big issue is, so like you said, this case ended up going for $178 million. I can pretty much guarantee you, just from my own experience working on patent cases, both sides almost certainly spent millions of dollars on legal fees um, before they got to this verdict. So if you don't have the ability to get an investor who will give you millions of dollars to fight for your patent, getting a patent may or may not be worth it. Um, kind of to your point of what's the biggest question it's skipping ahead to kind of the end with patents. One of the major benefits you get from a patent is uh, it lets you go to an investor and say, Hey, I have technology that's protected. So the investor now feels more comfortable giving you, let's say $10 million to build your business. Um, but if your technology is not going to get investors that excited, to where they're going to give you enough money to actually defend your technology in federal court by paying a whole lot of money for these expensive cases, then it tends not to be worth it for the everyday person. Um, with exceptions. I mean, but patents are basically a great way to get your technology to get investment money is really one of gotcha. the, uh, the bigger factors. Yeah. So, so it's more, if you're, if you're looking for large scale investment or if you just have, a lot of money tied up in it. It's a good idea. Otherwise, it's just your your. Yeah, and it's it's honestly action, I guess. Yeah, like if you're not expecting to have millions of dollars associated with like sale of the company, expansion of the company, or legal fees. Yeah, I guess that's not a bad way of kind of putting it. That's um because the other thing that you get into when you and why talking to a patent attorney can be helpful if you're if you're thinking about it. Um, you might also have a technology that's easier to protect through other things. You mentioned trade secrets, um, copyright and trade secrets. That can be really useful in, for example, software. Um, it's not that you can't get patents on software. You definitely can. But um, if you're a programmer, 
and you're developing some new form of software, you might go to a patent attorney and they might say, well, patenting this is going to be really expensive and really hard and even harder to defend. But if you can get this, you know, to be the next TikTok, you might be able to turn it into a multi-billion dollar business without the patent protection or maybe worry about the patent protection down the road. So it's always, as always, as I'm always going to say, since I'm not offering legal advice on here, it is something you would want to talk to an attorney about. But if you're thinking to yourself, I'm not going to be able to get an investor interested in this, or if you don't think that, you know, you can talk to any investors that are interested, patents a really, really expensive gamble for your everyday person. But as in this case, in the biggest case, um, these are two big companies, Plexcon Inc. and Novartis is actually, it's a very large pharmaceutical company. Um, and the pharmaceuticals uh, that were involved in this, the, that the protein kinases that the patents were on, um, the drugs were worth about $1.5 billion a year. That's their estimated value. So if you've got something that's worth $1.5 billion a year, you're going to want to make sure there's patent protection on it. Um, you don't mm -hmm. want to have some other company just, you know, some Smoking company. In, in. Yeah, like some Chinese company, for example, might completely infringe on all your patents and then try to sell those cheaper um, products that you work so hard to develop in the United States for 50 cents uh, each. And now your company is completely out of business. And again, that goes back to the investors. So I can tell you whenever I've sat in these meetings with, uh, you know, big investors from big investment companies. One of the first questions that usually comes up in a technology discussion is, do you have patent protection? And it's for this reason. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I don't, I, I, I don't want to spend too much more time on this because patents are something that um, it's not really something I do anymore. And these patent cases are insanely complicated. I could talk about them for hours. In fact, just this case, just looking into it, there's so much going on in this case, and it will almost certainly be appealed. It looks like I, I looked at the federal docket. It looks like they're going to, um, or the, the case history, it looks like it's going to be um, appealed. And this number could change in a lot of different ways. But yeah, it's not surprising that the first one is a patent case. Patent cases are usually among the biggest cases. But the second one is where things get really interesting. Um, the second biggest case of 2021, at least biggest verdict from a jury, was Rudnicki v. Farmers Insurance Exchange. And this was a sexual harassment case, but it was a sexual harassment case with a bit of a twist. Uh, what it was, was Farmers Insurance, as a company, had a lot of sexual harassment claims that women were making and uh, coming forward with them. And a VP in the company, an older male VP, testified that yes, there's that a lot of this has happened and that the, um, the company has had a lot of set problems dealing with sexual harassment and he got fired. So it wasn't, he sued not technically as sexual harassment, but more as a whistleblower about sexual harassment. And the jury did not like it. They did not like hearing that farmer's insurance lashed out at him and terminated his um, very lucrative position in the company. And they awarded $155 million. That's more of a, you did bad, so we're going to take it out of your, your pocketbook on farmers? Yeah, and in fact, you actually just hit the nail on the head with that one. Because they, of the $155 million, 
150 million of that was punitive damages. So punitive damages are uh, the legal uh, definition is if the company acted in, or rather the defendant, the loser in the case, uh, who's getting punitive damages awarded against them, if they engaged in malice, oppression, or fraud, um, that, which really just means were they behaving really badly, um, a jury can punish them. But as we talked about with tort reform, there's a both in the through the courts and through the legislature, depending on what state you're in, um, punitive damages can get cut way down. And McDonald's showed us that one, yep. Yeah, yeah, and not just, and it's something that's pretty much universal. That no matter how bad the company is, uh, if you get a massive punitive damages award, that is a significant number of times bigger than what's called the compensatory damages, meaning like the amount to make somebody whole um, so that their actual suffering. Um, if the punitives are way, way higher, if they're like, for example, usually the, the rough estimate um, is about 10 times or more higher, then the court's going to cut it way down. And in this case, the court cut 150 million down to 18.9 million, which Wait, is still... So so his pain and suffering was five point four million. How much was this guy making? Uh, about well, so that's the thing. He's a VP in the company that was far along in his career, so he actually was doing quite well for himself. Um, yeah, and this is a much longer conversation as well. It's another one of those things that I could talk about forever. But the reality is, when you're dealing with employment cases, if you make a lot of money, you get much much bigger amounts of money as a general rule. Um, than if you're somebody making minimum wage. So a lot of times when you hear about a million dollar case in employment, a lot of times, not always, but a lot of times, it's because they actually were higher up on the, you know, the food chain, so to speak. Um, so yeah, the fact that this was a VP, what you end up doing is you end up showing here's how much money they make, here's what kind of equity they have, here's how much money they would have made in the future. So whenever I've had an employment case with a you know a vice president of a company or higher, um, those tend to be the kind of cases that you're more likely to get millions of dollars from a jury verdict on. Um, and also as a result, they tend to be the more lucrative cases overall. Uh, but here with you know a little over 5 million in compensatory to to compensate him for his loss um 150 was still many many times you know what's that 30 times what he was getting in compensatory so the court cut that way down um cut it right down to 16 so or I'm sorry not 16 about up closer to 19 18.9 million so yeah that's that's something that's not the bigger takeaway from this is and something that we'll talk about more as we get into more cases. Um, definitely in a, I don't know how much of this was the pandemic and how much of this is people pushing back against employers in so many different ways um, and how much of this is a post Me Too movement world. But juries are very quick to punish a company that is misbehaving, especially when it comes to sexual harassment. Uh, and there's a lot of laws that have changed recently, especially in California, but also on the federal level as well, um, to empower people who've been sexually harassed to make a strong claim against the company. 
So uh, I wouldn't surprise me if we see more and more of these big verdicts related to sexual harassment. So that being the second biggest one, moving on to the third, I'm going to butcher these names and I apologize, but I believe it's Equahua v. Chaus. Um, this is a brain injury case, and it was a $140 million judgment. Brain injury cases are something that I do quite a bit of, and they do tend to be among the biggest verdicts. And you're going to hear this. We're going to have a number of brain injury cases as we move forward. Um, this case was a little different, though. This was a case where it wasn't just somebody who was severely injured. They actually had severe spine injury and a severe brain injury. But it was a car, a massive car accident involving a rollover. Um, it also, the, probably the most interesting thing about it is, it was a case involving the defense, the insurance company and the insurance defense lawyers refusing to turn over phone records during discovery and the judge becoming frustrated because what they were saying, uh, what the plaintiff was arguing was that the defendant was on their phone as they were driving and that's what caused the massive accident. And since the phone records weren't turned over in discovery, the court punished them with terminating sanctions, which means you don't get to make a defense. And that means that it's basically just one side taking penalty shots on you through the trial and then getting to the, <laughs> yeah, just over and over and over again. And you can't really, def in fact, it's taking penalty shots and you don't get a goalie. <laughs> so it's basically, you're just getting destroyed by the other side. Um, and you don't get to make a defense. And in this case, you know, you're hearing from Almost certainly you're hearing from neurologists and spine surgeons, people saying just how bad their injuries are and no one to argue that those numbers aren't right. Um, so it led to a massive verdict. Um, so did the insurance side basically like plead the fifth on. We can't we can't give you these records because they're going to prove that we're guilty. Well, kind of. So, you know, first of all, it just because I have to say it, pleading the fifth would, is technically criminal and it's uh, to not incriminate yourself. Right, right, right. But, but uh, what they were, so in discovery, you can ask for pretty much anything. And if it's, you know, depending on where you're, California or federal, the, the, this, the fast way of saying it is, is it reasonably calculated to lead to admissible evidence? Meaning if you're asking for something that might reasonably turn out to be valuable, the other side has to turn it over. Uh, unless it's privileged or there's a few other exceptions. But as a general rule, you can ask for this information and you have broad discovery powers. And if the other side just says no and the court gets angry enough at them, they can essentially punish them with sanctions. And there's different types of sanctions. Terminating sanctions are basically the worst possible one. It's you don't get to make a defense. I'm just going to find that you lost, but, and you're not going to get to make any arguments uh, in response to that. And then the other side gets to just put on their damages case and just talk about damages. Seems like the dumbest thing to do on the defense side. I mean, at least in a case like this. As a general rule, yes. Um, it's unless you've got something in there, like you said, pleading the fifth, unless you've got something criminal. Um, here's the thing like texts right. being sent the minute that the accident happened? Yeah, well, that probably happened. 
right? And that probably there was probably something like that text messages right at the time of the accident or right before it, or, you know, maybe they were on a 20 minute drive somewhere and you can see a lot of text messages being done as they're driving. Um, the thing is, is even then, um, you could have, they could have still at least argued that, um, you know, maybe the damages are excessive. That's, that's kind of the insurance company playbook is if you can argue that it's their fault, you argue it's their fault. But if you can't, you argue that the treatment is too much, or you argue that the bills are too much that, um, you know, or that their brain injury isn't as bad as they say it is. Uh, but they couldn't make any of those arguments because of the terminating sanctions. Uh-huh. And, you're right. It is probably the dumbest thing you can do. One of the reasons why people do it over and over and over again is because a lot of attorneys, especially on the defense, uh, this is coming from a decade of a defense experience, I can tell you, you almost think that it's your job to find a way to not give the damaging information over to the other side. And to some extent, I understand that because if there is a privilege that you can assert or some way to delay which, you know, we talked about this, but insurance companies delay and delay and delay for a lot of reasons. You might do that. The problem is, is that sometimes attorneys who aren't paying attention keep the fight going and think they'll get away with it to the point where the judge has had it with them. Um, And by the way, if you, I don't want to go way too far off the rails with this discussion, but if you're thinking of a case that, might have been in the news recently where that happened. Alex, Alex Jones. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I mean, he, by refusing this, this happened, I think in Connecticut, I hope I'm not getting my cases mixed up, but I think in Connecticut by refusing to turn over any of his information, which now later his attorneys in another case turned over. So they have all these text messages, but by refusing to engage in discovery and refusing to turn anything over that was being asked for, he didn't even get to make a defense. So he just basically had to sit there and wait for a verdict. And that's how you lose. Yeah. And that's how you get a billion dollar verdict against you. It's, you know, you're just, like I said, just somebody's just taking penalty shots and you have no defense. They're, I mean, a five-year-old could probably take a penalty shot and get a score, <laughs> right? So it's, you've basically set it up so that you've made it as easy as you possibly could have for the other side. Um, so yeah, this was, I, I don't get me wrong. This was a brain injury case with massive, massive damages. So $140 million judgment that might've happened even if they had made a defense. Uh, it also should be mentioned that another thing that happens in the insurance company playbook is you deny liability for as long as you possibly can. And then when you show up at trial, you might say, Oh no, 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 no. We, we're not saying it wasn't our fault. And they tried to do that in this case. They actually tried to say, oh, no, 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 we're admitting it's, you know, it, that, that it was our fault for the accident in the hopes of pivoting to make a defense that just don't punish us with big damages. Or I shouldn't say punish us because technically this was all compensatory. But just don't, you know, the damages that they're asking for are just too high. Um, but then because they had terminating sanctions, they really couldn't put on a real defense for that. So... Yeah, they got obliterated. Like you said, this is one of the dumbest things you can possibly do as a defense attorney. But, and you probably remember this from the time you were working with me in a defense firm. Um, Yeah, people, you see attorneys not make the smartest calls, and sometimes it blows up in their face. Yeah, Uh, yeah, 
and and attorneys who are who think that they're zealously defending their clients sometimes miscalculate but time and time again if you have discovery requests for something especially electronic information which i'll talk about more later but if you have that and you don't turn it over the punishments are getting more severe not less severe for uh parties refusing to turn over that kind of stuff so it's basically just judges getting tired of it and more and more cases where judges are getting tired of it so um that's number three so number four was Diaz v. Tesla Inc. This was another case that made national news. It's another employment case, and it's a case involving uh, race discrimination. Um, specifically, yeah, this is one of those. And, and you know what this is? This is one of those cases where management messed up so bad for so long that the evidence, uh, the federal judge actually, this was a federal case too, which usually is employer friendly. A lot of employers would rather be in federal court than California state court. But the federal judge commented that the evidence presented was just absolutely horrible. Um, and so there was evidence of you know, Nazi symbolism. There was uh, videotape conversations that appeared to occur where nothing was being done. So it was basically just racism piled upon racism with nothing happening. And there was, according to the federal judge, there was an enormous amount of evidence that was presented. Um, this is a case, it was $137 million. So it was a big one. Um, but another, yeah, there's another example of mostly punitive. So it was $130 million in punitives that were reduced to 15 million. So another one of those big cases, big jury verdicts, very angry jury um, that got reduced immediately by the judge from 130 to 15 million, even though the judge really didn't like um, the facts, commented on how bad the facts that were presented uh, against Tesla, that, that they were just really uh, damaging. But still, because of the way our system works, um, 130 million was too much. I feel like that's silly, especially in comparison to the, the number one, you know, case from this 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 review, yeah. where it's like 170, 180 million for a one and a half billion dollar a year drug, but like Tesla's market cap is seven hundred billion dollars. So, yeah, I mean, yes. if you're talking just pure percentages, like it, it probably should have been higher, and then knocked down to only a hundred and. 37 million yeah this is this is one of those things that you'll hear from the public when there's a lot of frustration against powerful big companies um you come up with this question all the time of how much are they really getting punished by these punishments and uh, there's a long story behind this there's some supreme court case law it, it goes to whether or not it's a due process violation to punish a company for far worse than the than the individual who was actually harmed was compensated for, meaning. So here you have about ball little more than $5 million in compensatory damages. Um, one way you can get those kind of numbers, because you might be saying, well, how much money is he losing by, you know, by through racism? Uh, one common way is through emotional distress, severe emotional distress. So it's hard to put a number on somebody's emotional distress, but it's not as if racism that occurred in Tesla is going to be 
a thousand times worse emotional distress than something that happened at a smaller company. So what ends up happening with the numbers is you have an emotional distress award that the jury feels is reasonable for what happened here, which would have been about $5 million. And then you say, okay, based on that, what kind of punitives should you have? And so nobody's really looking at the company. Um, evidence does come in about how much money the company has when they're deciding the punitives. So what you end up doing is you end up getting these huge punitive awards because the jury says the company has so much money, we need to punish them. We need to send a message to them. Um, the message gets out, but then the actual dollar amount gets reduced because of uh, the law that ties it to compensatory damages. So it's, like I said, that's a longer conversation on whether or not that makes a lot of sense. Um, yeah. I almost yeah. feel like there should be a another category where you get like over a certain multiplier and then it's like, well, maybe there's a just a slush fund or something for everything above 10 times goes into a fund to, I don't know, go to nonprofits that help with race discrimination stuff. I mean, that's the kind of thing, honestly, like that a, a reform again, because it's all a mess. Yeah, this is one of those that that's actually not it's one of those things. It's a really good idea or at least seems like a good idea <laughs> that you just said it's something that you know yeah maybe if to punish the company um if the jury finds that the company is extremely culpable there should be instead of the money going to the plaintiff maybe it should go to something like preventing race discrimination in the public um or you know some kind of charity for that or you know i don't know but some kind of some kind of way of punishing the company and still getting good out of it doing good but Unfortunately, the law isn't really set up to do that right now, at least not in the, these types of situations. And so we have punitive damages to punish the company, but how much it punishes the company is an open question. And the money goes to the person who was harmed, but it, it's, it's this weird balancing act. And I, I can tell you without, obviously I wasn't in the jury room when they were deciding this, but I, from talking from, you know, polling jurors after they come up with verdicts a lot of times they have they struggle with this because a jury has to say okay i understand this guy you know this company is worth hundreds of billions of dollars we need to punish them but should we really give this guy 10 billion dollars right did he because they they know at the same time he didn't have 10 billion dollars worth of suffering in their mind so they're 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 struggling with that they're saying are we playing with monopoly money here um and so, and also keep in mind, and I really get into this, but the jury is getting instructions from the judge and they're they're They have like a checklist. It's kind of a, almost like a choose your own adventure. If this, then this kind of questions that they're instructed when they're coming up with, uh, how to, you know, figure out these numbers. And so a lot of times the, the jury's struggling with what is justice with this? How do we actually get to it? And you're probably right that there should be not so much tort reform, but corporate reform. So that big corporations, right. you know, don't get away with it, but that's, we could, we could do a lot of podcasts. We probably will <laughs> on that one. Um, but since this one's, this podcast has been going for a little while, I'm going to wrap up with number five right now. This is a really quick one. Um, number five was TRC operating co Inc V Chevron USA. And, uh, this is oil companies. So another, it's not surprising that anything not involving surprised that Chevron made the list. <laughs> yeah. Anything where there's a chance that, um, you know, an oil company doing something, getting in trouble for it. 
This one's a little, it, it's interesting. It, it has interesting facts. This is another situation where you have a business suing another business about their ability to make money. So when it's oil companies, just like with patent technology, just like a pharmaceutical company, it's not shocking that the number is going to be big. And here the number was 73 million. Um, but what happened in this case was, at least according to the um, to TRC, uh, the one oil company, uh, they said that there was a sinkhole that was caused by Chevron um, on the that they needed um, to be able to uh, you know basically do their business to to extract oil um, and and they needed their oil business to be able to operate. Uh, I believe this was in Bakersfield, and there was a massive sinkhole that they blamed Chevron for. Somebody actually died. Um, Chevron had a supervisor die, but yeah, so it was a bad sinkhole. Um, the death wasn't part of the verdict. So this wasn't a wrongful death case. This was just a, our business can't operate. There's a whole nother case for the, uh, whole nother issue for the wrongful death. Um, but this case was just our business needs to make money. Chevron, you messed up. Now there's a giant sinkhole. It took away our ability to make money and the math was done out to $73 million. Uh, not also not surprising. A lot of times one, one business suing another business when they make, when the businesses might be making hundreds of millions or billions of dollars a year and the oil industry. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you're talking just huge numbers, so that's not uncommon. I mean, it's oil's a trillion dollar industry with a T. So it's another one of those really, really giant industries. Um, so, not really surprising on number five. Um, just a preview. I if I know I'd mentioned earlier that um, there's certain cases when you're starting to see trends in the public of what what, what are the big cases these days uh, in the personal injury space. Probably the biggest trend with the big verdicts are brain injury cases. And while we're going to stop right now at number five, just a preview for you: number six, seven, and eight are each brain injury cases. So it's not surprising that a lot of brain injury cases are in the top 10. And we're going to talk about that a lot more in the next podcast. But for right now, um, we'll just wrap it up right here. And I hope everyone can join me in the next one. Bye.